Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is episode number 1,165 with Pastor Erwin McManus. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Erwin McManus. He's a best-selling author, entrepreneur, fashion designer, filmmaker, and founder of Mosaic, a church movement based in the heart of Hollywood with a community that spans the globe. He has committed his life to study the genius and the pursuit of God, never knowing that the two worlds would one day collide. And he's written a new book called The Genius of Jesus, the man who changed everything. And this episode was so powerful for me that I wanted to share it within two different episodes. So part two will be out later this week. In this episode, we discuss how we are all born geniuses, but most of us grow out of it in adulthood. How to cultivate our fullest potential in life. Why empathy is the highest form of intelligence. How to fully love ourselves unconditionally. The difference between faith and belief and so much more. If you're enjoying this at any moment, make sure to share this with a friend, text someone, or post it over on social media, as well as click the subscribe button here on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere that you're listening to podcasts. And make sure to leave us a review with feedback of the part you enjoyed the most over on Apple Podcast. And I want to give a shout out from our review of the week from a fan on Apple Podcasts. This is from Tintin who said, the podcast offers quality knowledge that feeds my brain on a wide variety of topics. The host is genuine and kind and his voice is very easy to listen to. I often feel inspired and motivated after listening. Well, Tintin, I appreciate it. I'm glad my voice is smooth and inspiring and I'm glad you're getting a lot of knowledge from the guests we bring on here. And again, if you want a chance to be shouted out as a fan of the week, then just go to Apple Podcast right now. Leave us a review for your chance to be shouted out in the future. Okay, in just a moment, the one and only Erwin McManus. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness. I've got my good friend, Erwin McManus, in the house. Good to see you, sir. Oh, it's so good to be with you. It's great to be with you. And um, I'm excited about this because we had you on the show uh, two and a half years ago, and it blew up. People loved it. We talked about a lot of things, all my curiosity, all my <laughs> questions about the world, and is this real, and spirituality, and religion, and all these different things. And you've got a new book called The Genius of Jesus. The Man Who Changed Everything, where you, you break down the genius of Jesus and how he wasn't really known as a genius, or at least in our modern right. times, he's not talked about as a genius, but he's probably one of the most genius people that there's ever been around. And I want to talk, I want to get back to, to, to Jesus, but I feel like there's a thing of potential that we, that we want to reach. A lot of people mm -hmm. want to reach their potential. They, they feel like I have this untapped potential, or we see potential in other people that don't tap into it fully. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Jesus was someone who was able to tap into his potential and beyond. Um, but it seems like a lot of us never fully tap into that. 
It's like, yeah, we, like everyone dies so with like so much potential still inside of us, <laughs> even if they accomplish the greatest, uh, you know, scientific discoveries mm -hmm. or art or athletics or music. There's still so much left within us. How should we th view and think about our own potential? And how can we get the most out of our potential as human beings? Well, that's a big question, right? And it sounds almost um, incredibly, I guess, uh, discouraging that we all die with potential. <laughs> but I actually think it's encouraging. Okay. See, because if you had limited potential, then you could die having used all your potential. Okay. But if you have unlimited potential, then you will die with some of that potential being never actualized. Is that, isn't that sad though, or is that, is that a good thing? No, it's a good thing because you see, if you have a limited resource mentality, then you'll, you'll think to yourself, well, I only have so much potential. Uh -huh. But if you have an abundance mentality and you realize, no, no, there's a, a limitlessness to human capacity, I'm gonna die with some things I could have done undone. I have to yeah. live with that. Oh, man. And you're going to die with some of your potential never being actualized because you have limitless potential. You mm. have capacity that you're not even aware of. And the more you grow, the more you develop, the more you mature, uh, the more you understand who you are as a human being, uh, the more you'll access that potential. So really the question isn't, will you die with potential that you've never actualized? The question is, how much of that potential are you going to use during your life? So how do we tap into the maximum amount that we could utilize and not regret the things that we're going to leave behind because there's going to be so much in us still. So how do we make sure we get the most out of us? Right. And so I, I would say it's, it's really a, a matter of focus. Don't focus on your uh -huh. potential because that becomes incredibly self-centered. See, if you're just uh. focusing on, I want to make sure I, I, I use all my potential that I, that I don't leave my potential unused rather than asking, I want to make sure I do the most good in the world. I want to make sure that um, mm -hmm. I've accomplished the most good for others. And, and so I think sometimes, um, even though we're talking about human development, it can become incredibly narcissistic. It's not really about mm -hmm. how much potential you have. It really is about how much good you do. Okay. And what if someone's <laughs> feeling lost or trapped or hopeless and they don't know where to go with their potential and they're trying to figure out what their purpose is? How can they start to discover that? What are some, some ways they can at least start tapping into that? Well. It's, it's to me fascinating how you get different advice from different people. Uh -huh. Some people say, follow your passions, yeah. right? And that doesn't always work for me because I'm, I'm passionate. And, and <laughs> about everything. About everything. <laughs> and so people say, do what you're passionate about. I'm going, then I'm going to do everything. Because yeah. uh, I think some people actually are just passionate. Then they pick an object and uh, they're passionate and, and they, they pick a career. And, uh, but they could be passionate about 10 different things. And then some people say, well, do what you're good at, what you're talented mm -hmm. to do. But there's some people who are really talented at multiple things. And or people feel like, well, I'm not talented at anything. It has the same effect. Mm -hmm. If you're a, a 10 out of 10 in 10 things, you're still confused. Right. Just like if you're a one out of 10 on 10 things. <laughs> and so it's not even about how much uh, talent you have. It, it is an intersection of, of, of passion because passion gives you energy and it fuels you. It has to be something you love. But I also mm -hmm. think it's an intersection also of, of uh, natural talent and ability and the things that uh, you, you seem to be predisposed to be good at. Yeah. I do think there's a, a genetic um, element to this, that uh, there's just some things I'm not bored to do. You know, that, that adage that, you know, if you can dream it, you can do it. Mm -hmm. It's just not true. Right. It, it, maybe if you can dream it, someone can do it. <laughs> but there are so many things I can dream that I can't do. 
there's some things I can dream that you can actually do. Right. And, and I think sometimes what we have to realize is that it's a combination of things. It's, it's a combination of how you're designed, what you're actually good at doing, and what you're passionate, what you love to do. My brother was really good at playing football, but he didn't love it. Mm. And so he mm-hmm. uh, had a lower ceiling. And, and other people, I think, were more passionate about a sport and had a lower ceiling that accomplished more. And right. then it, it's also, I think, um, the, be, what's behind the curtain. What do you love to grow in? Mm. What do you love to learn? What do you love to develop? When people say to me, oh, I really want to become a pro athlete or I want to become an actor. But then I would ask some questions like, okay, how many hours a day are you in the gym? Or are you paying for acting lessons in LA? And, <laughs> and I, yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how many young actors tell me, I can't afford acting lessons. Right. And I say, oh, then you can't afford to become an actor. And uh, my, my daughter is uh, really a world-class singer. Yes. And what would drive her crazy is that she would talk to lesser talented singers who worked with her and she would say, you need to get voice lessons. And they would take it as an insult. Mariah's been taking voice lessons as long as she could mm-hmm. virtually breathe. She never saw her level of talent as the reason to not develop discipline. That's interesting. And, and I think a lot of times it happens is that um, we want the outcome but not the process. Yeah. We love the idea of the outcome, but we don't love the reality of the process. You can usually identify the dream that you were, in a sense, created to live out because you actually love the struggle, mm-hmm. not just the success. Right. And when you, when you fall in love with the struggle of something, and as, as a writer, I, I mean, I, I love the outcome. Yeah. And, uh, you love the finished book. Yeah. yeah. But, but what people don't realize is that I actually love the outcome less than I love the process. Yeah, that's interesting. I love the process. I love the struggle of trying to understand a concept or, or, or to have clarity about a particular theme or idea. I, I, I love the struggle of going into my inner world and, and figuring out how this connects to who I really am and mm. how to bring um, information and experience together. And I love the struggle of can this actually be something worth publishing? Yes. And, and if I didn't love that struggle, I would not feel... Um, really that connected to the outcome. Mm-hmm. And, and that's so why it's some, appreciating the journey. It's yeah. appreciating and, and enjoying the experience of the pain. Right. And that's why there's a difference. Some people are authors, but they're not writers. Yeah. They wanted to get a book published. And, and maybe they're great at branding and marketing. And, yeah. and, and the book sells great, which is wonderful. But, but being a writer is different. Mm. Being a writer is, is this deep need to struggle through an idea, an experience, and, and to translate that. In, into this art form of a book. And I think it's true for everything in life. It's mm-hmm. like being a cook or a chef, right? And um, I, I, I'm not a great chef, I, but I love cooking. Mm. And I, and I, but I've learned to love the process of it. I, learn, I, I, I love, I have a smoke. My backyard looks like I'm a wannabe chef, right? You know, I have a smoker and I have a hibachi grill and I have a, <laughs> you know, a, a regular barbecue yes. grill. And, you know, and because and I, I love Japanese cooking and I love, you know, good southern smoking and, and, and I love learning the process. And I, I've made brisket so bad that I literally threw it out. I wouldn't even feed it to my dog. It, it just it came out so hard and I could have given up but I just wanted to keep going back and keep going back and I realized that that if I'm going to ever have an outcome I'm proud of I have to be committed to the process mm. I have to be willing to fail I have to be willing to struggle and I think that's a part of it is when you find something you love so much 
that the struggle gives you a sense of significance, that's when you're on the right path. Yes. My friend Jay Shetty says, you can't be anything you want. He's like, we always, people tell us you can be anything you want. He says, you can't be anything you want, but you can be everything you are. And I, I think that's the line, but it's something around that. It's, I love him. You He's can't so be, insightful. Yeah, you can't be anything you want, but you can be everything you actually are. That's right. And, and you know, and, and I've seen certain um, cliches or uh -huh. adages that are out there, like in Nike, it says, uh, if you have a body, you're an athlete. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I look at that, I go, <laughs> yes and no. Yeah. Uh, okay. And if you have a body, you have the potential of being athletic. Yes. And, but we translate that to say, if you have a body, you're an Olympian. Right. No. But, but not everyone can be an Olympian. No. And not everyone can be, in, a, in the truest sense, an athlete. But everyone can move toward physical health. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at things like that, I go, those statements can actually be incredibly misleading. Yeah, I have a body. My body's deteriorating. I'm 63 now. I don't have the same body I had at 23 or even at 33. Uh, but I can still be athletic. I can still mm -hmm. compete. I can still uh -huh. have fun and, uh, and, and enjoy myself. But I, I need to realize that I have a body, but it doesn't make me an Olympian. Right. And, and maybe it barely makes me an athlete. <laughs> I, I was in Florida at a hotel working out, and uh, I saw this sign that said, if it's humanly possible, I can do it. And I read that and I thought, I wish that was true. Mm. But it's not true again. If it's humanly possible, there is a human that can do it. <laughs> not you, though. <laughs> but not necessarily me. And so I would say it's the same thing with genius. Uh -huh. That when, you, when I write about genius... I was just in a conversation uh, with um, the guy who the TV show Scorpion was inspired by. Uh -huh. uh, Walter has the highest recorded IQ in the world. Yes. And we started having a conversation about genius, and, and, and he completely disagrees with me, which I thought was wonderful. The guy with the highest IQ in the world completely disagrees with me. And because we started talking about how do you define genius? And he goes, well, you know, the facts are against you because only one to two percent of the world population ever graph out as a genius. Mm. And so... and. And so the facts are against me. 98% of people express no visible genius at all. So when I write about not just the genius of Jesus, but uh, the capacity of human beings to carry a unique genius in every single person, uh, I understand the facts are against me, but the mm. future is for me. Ooh, okay. And because the facts are always for the past. The facts are rarely for the future. See, the facts were not for air travel. The, the facts mm -hmm. were not submarines. The facts were not for airplanes. The facts were not four cell phones. So breaking the four minute mile. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the facts are never for the future. The facts are always for the past. Interesting. And so here I'm having a conversation with the guy with the highest oh. IQ in the world and I'm realizing he's right. The facts are against me. And he's in a rare category of that 2% um, of geniuses in the world. But it doesn't mean that human beings do not carry within them an inherent genius, mm -hmm. which is a very different thing. Because in the same way that not everyone's gonna be an Olympian, everyone can actually increase their capacity, their physical capacity, in the same way that, that not everyone is going to be Einstein or Bobby Fischer or Picasso or, or Mozart, it doesn't mean that there isn't a unique capacity within every human being. And that's what I'm really writing about. 20 years ago when um, I first started writing, I, 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 I made an anthropological statement that every human being is an artist, that every human being is a creative. Back then it was seen as absurd. Mm. And and yet, when you stop and think about this, because I've been a part of TED for like 20 years, and I listened to the TED Talks, and I've been a part of that community, and, and there's always someone who's an expert on a species, and they highlight why that species has so much value. And, and one of the questions I kept asking myself is, well, who's up there advocating for the human species? And what makes, what makes humans unique? What, what makes us different than every other species? 
And, and one of the things that really struck me was the one thing that human beings can do that no other species can do is that human beings can materialize the invisible. That human beings can actually take the imagination and translate into reality. Mm -hmm. There is no other species that can do that. Now, other species may be able to imagine, but they can't translate that imagination into mm. reality. And so here's what I think is mm. fascinating. If you looked at species from a purely objective level, from a naturalistic perspective, what human beings can do is, uh, you know what, bees create honey, right? Silkworms create silk. Like ants create colonies, beavers create dams. Humans create futures. Mm. We're the only species that can create future. If the planet was left to every other species, the planet would stay in, it, in its present. It would never change. And it would, it, would, um, it would evolve in a natural way, but humans have an ability to imagine a future that does not exist and create it. Right. We have this table, we have this book, we, right. we have this beautiful studio. It was all in someone's imagination first. And so before there were all these bulbs, before there was the school of greatness, it was, it was inside of your imagination. Uh -huh. And so when I walked into the studio, what I realized I was doing, I wasn't just walking inside of a room. I was walking inside of the imagination of Lou's house. Right. From I, years ago. That's right. Yeah. I stepped into your imagination here. You've invited me into your imagination, and now it's a part of my reality. Mm. All of us are living inside of someone else's imagination right now. That's interesting. This nation yeah. exists because it was in the imagination of Jefferson and Washington and Franklin and, and Hamilton. And with all of its imperfections, we're living inside of the imagination of these people. MLK Jr. said, I have a dream that one day a man will be measured by the content of his character and not the color of his skin. When Barack Obama took the, the oath of office and became the president of the United States, mm. he was literally walking inside of the dream of a man who no longer lived because he had been killed, but his dream could not be killed. Wow. And we were now living in the imagination of MLK Jr. We were living inside of the imagination of others who fought for a better world. And so when I look at the human species and I go, what humans can do is we create futures, then I go, okay, that is an intrinsic genius, whether we recognize it or not. Mm. So we all have genius within us. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Now, it doesn't mean we all actualize um, that genius. And it also doesn't mean that we all have genius at the level of an Olympian. Right. And so we have to recognize that there, there are individuals who are an unexpected iteration of human capacity. Mm. Mozart changes the game for composition. Einstein changes the game in the world of physics. Bobby Fischer changes the game in the world of chess. Tiger Woods changes the game in the world of golf. Michael Jordan changes the game in the world of, of basketball. Uh, you, you have individuals who ch change the game. Picasso changes the game. Why are some, and, why are some people more genius level than others then? Why are they the anointed or chosen ones, or did they choose themselves? Well, I think it's a combination of things. Um, there's, a, there's a man named George Land who worked for NASA, and he was asked, I think around 1968, to develop an assessment so they could find geniuses to work for NASA. Interesting. And uh, so George Land developed what was a genius assessment. Huh. And they gave that assessment to five-year-olds. 98% of five-year-olds were identified as geniuses. Hmm. They did a longitudinal study, followed these kids for the next 10 years. When they were 10 years old, only 30% of them still tested as geniuses. By the time they were 15 years old, only 12% of them were identified as geniuses. 100, 
I think it was 128,000 people then were graft and average age 31, only 2% could be identified as geniuses. So the question doesn't seem to be, is there genius inside of everyone? The question really needs to be, what happened to the genius that was inside of everyone? What happened? 98% of us are born geniuses, 2% of us live out that genius. Interesting. I think it's the same with human creativity. It's the same with human imagination. A part of the mistake of adulthood is that we see maturity as equivalent to standardization. If I can make you the same as everyone else, you're now an adult. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host if i can teach you to be standardized and to conform you are now an adult right and you know uh, i think neuroscience huh. tells us that by the age of 12 our brain has decided who we are so whatever you focus on before the age of 12 that becomes your mental uh, capacity. It's harder to break out of that later. Yeah, it's yeah. very, very difficult. Um, how many languages do you speak? Um, almost one. <laughs> I know you're trying almost to learn a, Spanish. Almost English, yeah, I'm, I'm learning Spanish, yes. And for you, Spanish is a, is a love language. <laughs> is a lo yeah, I love listening to salsa music and Latin music, but yeah, I don't always fully understand it. But I, I, I feel it, but I don't comprehend it. So if I asked you if you were a linguistic savant, you would probably say, say no. No, you, no. In fact, you'd probably say you're bad at languages. Yes. At this point, yes. How old do you think you were when you learned English? Um, I mean, one, two. I mean, you're starting to pick it up, I guess, right away. Right. So you're one, two years old. Yeah. And you're learning one of the most difficult, complex languages in the world. Uh-huh. When you were two years old, Louis, you were a linguistic savant. Right, that's true. If they'd moved you to Tokyo, you'd have learned Japanese without any difficulty. That's true. If they'd moved you to, to Manila, you would have learned Tagalog. And if they'd moved you to England, you would have finally learned real English. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yes. And if you'd gone to Buenos Aires, you would have learned Spanish. Mm -hmm. And the crazy thing about it is at the age of two, huh. you had all the attributes of genius, of a linguistic genius. Wow. And if you'd had the benefit of moving to four or five places, from the age of one to 10, you might have learned two, three, four different languages. Right. The reason Americans only speak one language is because their brain knew they only needed one language to survive and right. to thrive. Right. Your brain will only learn and hold the capacity for what it needs to survive. Wow. And so Spanish was my first language. I came to the States when I was young. I learned English right away. I remember early on my report card said transitional period, learning English. But the truth was, I could read that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just didn't tell them because I knew I wouldn't get grades <laughs> yes. and, uh, for a while. And it was, and I, I, I say this with, I, I, without any sense of, of accomplishment, it was easy. Mm -hmm. Learning English was easy. And you know why? Because when I was three, four, I was a linguistic savant. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm 63, it, a lot of that's diminished. <laughs> and so I still try to study languages and learn languages and I've studied German and Hebrew and Greek and of course English and Spanish and I, I've you know spent some time studying uh, Mandarin and Korean and Portuguese and 
And I just try to keep my brain pliable and adaptable, mm-hmm. but I don't have the same capacity now that I did then because I didn't nurture that capacity. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many different aspects of human genius were simply left unnurtured. Mm. And so we lost them along the way. Yeah. And so we, how do we recultivate them at later stages in life? Well, I would step back and go, what's the most important aspect of genius to recultivate? Because the likelihood that I'm going to be Mozart is not going to be really high, mm-hmm. or, or to be Picasso, or to be um, Bobby Fischer. And here's the crazy thing about genius. It's really irritating because it's not transferable. Mm. <laughs> I could spend my life at Mozart and I would never become a world-class composer. You get better, but you maybe know? not going to be world-class. Yeah. If anything, I'm, I might just become bitter. Or more frustrated, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because, you see, what, what, what genius does is it makes greatness look ordinary. Yeah. And Effortless. It, yeah, and, and so that's why a lot of people, when they become yeah. an expression of genius, they're actually despised by their peers. And I could spend my life with Picasso and never, never paint mm-hmm. like Picasso. Right. Or, um, you know, I, I, I could spend my life with Bobby Fischer and never learn how to become a master in chess. But the genius of Jesus, which is why I wrote about it, is the singular genius that's transferable. What is that? It's how to be fully human. Mm. And, and as I was studying genius for the last 40 years, I, I was always struck that there wasn't a single list that had Jesus on it of geniuses. And, and that list would be, I mean, the greatest, probably the most renowned genius in history is probably Leonardo da Vinci. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of like the iconic genius. In fact, a lot of my life was shaped around as, uh, the aspiration of Leonardo. And uh, I would study Da Vinci, I would study his thinking, I would study some of his practices, and I'd try to emulate them and take them on in my life, which is why I worked at becoming ambidextrous. It's why I would do so many things right-handed, and as opposed to left-handed, or left-handed, so it was right-handed. Tried to use both sides of my brain, and, 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 and tried to develop practices of Da Vinci, just trying to become more creative and more adaptive, more pliable mentally. And, but if I spend my life with Da Vinci, I'm not gonna become Da Vinci. Mm-hmm. And so what you realize is that genius is not transferable, but, there is one exception, it's the genius of Jesus. If I could, I just wanted to go back to like where the idea of the book came yeah. from. Um, I, I was in my back house during quarantine and I was by, by myself having a conversation with myself and, and I, I'm sure you do this too, Lewis. Uh, you, you ever have conversations, there's almost like two or three people in your head, Sure. which is why you know we're, we're never lonely, right? <laughs> or alone. And, uh, and so I'm having this conversation with myself and this thought just comes crashing through my head. How weird that my entire life revolves around a person who lived 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. As you know, I'm a follower of Christ. Yes. And uh, I, I believe deeply in Jesus. And, and, and I just thought, this is so bizarre that I, I live my life studying the teachings of Jesus. I live my life teaching others about Jesus. I live my life trying to emulate the principles of Jesus. I live my life believing I had this relationship with Jesus. And, and I thought, this is so weird that, that my whole life revolves around this person of Jesus. And then I had this follow-up thought with the other person in my brain, what if Jesus isn't real? How do you explain this? Mm-hmm. And so then I had a counter thought, and the other person in my head said, well, even if Jesus isn't real, the change in me is real. So how do I explain that? Mm. I thought, okay, so I could say, all right, Jesus really isn't God but I can't say I haven't been changed by Jesus. So then I had this follow-up thought, well, then I've been changed by the idea of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Which, okay, so there's two options. This is the way my brain kind of works. 
I've either been changed by the reality of Jesus, that really he really is who he says he was, or I've been changed by the idea of Jesus, which is to me almost more extraordinary. Mm. So I began this, uh, this process where I extricated all my belief in Jesus. And I said, all right, Jesus, I'm going to put all your miracles and everything on, in the mythology category. And now I want to know. As an idea. It didn't an, happen, but it was a myth. Yeah. Okay. So then, you know, or he was a real person, but there's a lot of mythology around yes, him. Yes, yes, yes. Right? So the teachings were real, but the mythology was added to the teachings. Mm -hmm. So I just went from that perspective. Yes. And then I thought, all right, why isn't Jesus on any list of geniuses? Does he qualify as a genius? What is his genius if he was one? And, um, and why would that genius be so overlooked for 2,000 years? And one of the first things I did is, that, that's chapter one is all about what genius is. It goes all the way back to the etymology of genius coming from the word genie. Mm -hmm. That the ancient Greeks actually believed that you were not a genius, you had a genius. That, a, that genius was given to you by the gods, and it wasn't really for you, it was for others. You were you're mm. a steward of that genius. Interesting. And, and so I thought, this is interesting because from the very beginning, the observation of genius is connected to divinity. And then I started wondering, why are so many geniuses just accepted in their madness or, or in their lack of humanity, mm -hmm. right? And, and then I realized <laughs> it's almost like this, this tension of genius seems to be an expression of both madness and of the divine. And so then I started breaking it down, going, okay, does Jesus qualify as a genius? And, and then I started asking, well, why is this genius not identified? And I realized it's about the canvas. See, when you're a genius, you have a canvas in which your genius is expressed, whether it's physics or mathematics, whether it's science or botany, sports, whether yeah. it's sports or music or art. But Jesus's canvas was the human spirit. Mm. And so when you, when you realize, oh, the reason Jesus's genius mm. is not easily observable or identifiable at first is because he wasn't trying to change art or music, he was changing us. And what his genius did is it actually changed people. I mean, think about this, 2,000 years later, there are people who actually want to do good in the world because of Jesus, mm -hmm. who want to live lives of generosity and sacrifice because of Jesus, that, that I became a part of that canvas. 2,000 years later, mm. I'm a part of the art form of the genius of Jesus. And then it exploded in my brain. Whatever you believe about Jesus, his genius is transferable. Because what you find is all over the world from every generation and every culture, every level of education or economic status, that when a person is genuinely um, affected by Jesus, they actually want to live for the good and the beautiful and the true. And so I began to identify what were some of the basic principles. I wish this book was all encompassing, but it's not. I just narrowed down to around six different characteristics of Jesus, where mm -hmm. his genius can be revealed and where his genius mm. is transferable to our lives. What are those six? Well, I'm not gonna give you all six, but maybe we'll, <laughs> I'll give you one or two. Sounds good. Uh, let me, like one is the, um, the genius of power. Okay. Power in what sense? Um, just even the understanding of power. Okay. Like, I mean, think about it right now. We live in a time, and during the, during the quarantine, during COVID, uh, we had the protests with Black Lives Matters, mm -hmm. with racial equality, with social justice. And, and, and there have been conversations for the past several years around um, reparations about, you know, how, how, do, how do nations deal with the fact that they've wiped out or damaged so many uh, peoples in history, yeah. whether it's the Maoris in New Zealand or their Aboriginal in Australia or the uh, Native American Indians here um, in the United States or 
Um, and, and we think this is a, a natural conversation, but historically, nations never felt they needed to repay what they took. See, it, it, when, it, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Egyptian Empire, uh, the Norse Vikings, they would have never, they would, they would have laughed you out of the room if you said you, you owe something to the people that you conquered and, right. and wiped out. See, the concept that nations have a responsibility with power is actually a concept that is transformed by the genius of Jesus. Mm. See, Jesus changed the view of power. He actually mm. taught us that power should be used to empower, not to overpower. Mm. When, and in fact, in the Bible, it says that when Jesus knew that all authority and all power had been given in, to him and trusted to him, the next thing he does is he ties a towel around his waist and he washes his disciples' feet. What Jesus does with power is he serves. Mm-hmm. And this idea that um, we should actually um, care about our history, the idea that, that now that we understand slavery is, is evil, not just unethical, that we should actually care about the damage we've done backwards, that's not a, um, an evolutionary concept. The evolutionary concept says, it says we were more powerful and you've got to live with it. Mm. We're the conquerors, you're the conquered. Well, I, I, I guess I'm the conquered and you're the conquerors, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the reality is that evolutionary thinking, a deterministic view of the universe, a view that there's no God, then there, there is no foundation for social justice. Mm. There's no foundation for, um, for um, political morality. There's no foundation for governments being for the people. And Jesus changed the view of power. And how does one man affect every emerging developing nation in the world for the next 2,000 years, where it becomes mm-hmm. the common thinking? Mm-hmm. And, and there's so many different places where Jesus revolutionizes our way of thinking. You know, there's that old adage that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh-huh. But it's actually not true. Absolute power does not corrupt absolutely. Absolute power reveals absolutely. Mm, tell me more. See, power doesn't corrupt you. What power does is it empowers you to be yourself. Um, to be more of who you are. More of who you are. It's kind of like they say about people who start making money, it kind of reveals more of who they are. Yeah. Yeah, money doesn't make you evil. Right. <laughs> yeah. Money allows you to express whatever's in you more. Mm-hmm. And what Jesus actually teaches us is that God has absolute power, but he's absolute good. And so God actually can be trusted with power because he's good. What happens is that humans are not always motivated by the good. And so that power actually reveals what we're motivated by. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm from El Salvador, and you know, my region of the world has two forms of government, revolution and dictatorship. Right. <laughs> and what happens is the revolutionaries, when they gain power, become the dictators. Because what ends up happening is that there's not mm. a change in values and not a change in essence. And one of the most powerful things mm. in the world is when you have power and you realize, I only want to use this power to do good in the world. Yes. That, by the way, comes from the genius of Jesus. I, I think another aspect of the genius of Jesus, and I open up uh, chapter three with this, is empathy. Mm-hmm. And there's a different definition of empathy. I, I tried to divide between pity and sympathy and compassion and empathy, because we kind of lump them all into one category. And, and right now, uh, it's interesting, I, I've worked with 
an endless number of assessments for personality and, and psychological frameworks and, and, uh, and they worked with three neuro clinics across the country. And, and some assessments, when they test you on empathy, it's all about how much your emotions are involved in the decision. Mm. how much it affects you. That's actually not empathy. <laughs> and uh, that's emotional bias, mm-hmm. you know? And empathy is when you actually factor in how your choices, your words, your actions affect other people. Empathy is about being able to see the world from the vantage point of another person's soul. Yes. And in the book, I, um, mm. I argue that empathy is the highest form of intelligence. Mm. Because uh, in, in even in my conversation with Walter about um, genius, uh, genius is usually limited to the category of IQ. Right. And, and only now are we becoming more aware of the importance of EQ right. and or relational intelligence or emotional intelligence. And, and, and I look back and I realize that as, when I was young, um, I, I, I lived in a, in a complex kind of environment, as I know you did too. Yes. And when you're in a family system that's not healthy, you develop survival skills. Mm-hmm. And early on, I began to develop the ability to, to feel people's emotions, even when they were hiding them. And I, I find that a lot of times when people mm. are the, the children of, of, um, of people who are drug addicted or alcoholics or, or in an abusive situation, they, they develop almost a... Um, a high awareness of potential danger. Yes, and it, it, it and uh, it's and, and because of that, they're able to sense danger coming before anybody else sees it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and they can develop, develop hypervigilance, right. where they they can see danger everywhere, even when there's not danger everywhere. And one of the things that happened for me is my emotional intelligence elevated at a much faster rate than maybe my my um, IQ, you know, my intelligence quotient. And I was flunking out of school, but I could read a room. Mm-hmm. I, I could feel what people were feeling. And, and I, I remember when I was younger, I, w- I remember saying that I could see emotions the way people see furniture. And, and it was, for me, debilitating. It was paralyzing. Mm. It was almost over, over, um, it was overload for me. Yeah. And now I look back and I realize I was developing a, a superpower. Yes. And when I, when I speak, I, I can actually feel the room. I can't explain it. I mean, I, it doesn't matter. I mean, I've spoken to audiences of 40, 50,000, 30, you know, 1,000, 20,000. And no matter what the size of the room is, I can feel what's going on in the room. And, and sometimes I can't explain it. It's almost as if this person is now close to me. They're, they're 10,000 people away, and now they're only a foot away from me. I can mm. feel what's going on inside of them. And, and there's, this, there's this dynamic connection to people that's highly empathetic. And... What I see in Jesus is that Jesus' emotional intelligence was at such a different level that he didn't even answer the questions that people were asking because they were not asking him from the right frequency. Mm. And so you, you look at Jesus. Huh. I mean, if you think about an, a work of art, in John chapter 8, um, these religious leaders catch a woman committing adultery, rip her out of the bed, leave the man, probably a friend, right? You know, yeah, yeah. drive this woman naked <laughs> down the street, throw her at Jesus' feet at the temple, and then say to Jesus, the law says that she should be stoned. What do you say? Wow. And they all, they all have stones in their hands ready to stone this woman in front of Jesus. And it says that Jesus bends down, writes on the sand. It doesn't tell us what he writes. And, and then he says, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. Just one phrase. 
And, and then it tells us one by one <laughs> to begin dropping their stones from the oldest to the youngest. Wow. <laughs> and, I, and, and one stroke, in one elegant stroke, Jesus is able to defend this woman and reveal the hypocrisy in those men. And then after they're all gone, the woman... He doesn't answer the question. Yeah. That's asked to them. It's yeah. like it's a whole different frequency of conversation. Mm. And, and then when they're all gone, Jesus looks at her and says, woman, who condemns you? And she looks around, she goes, no one. He goes, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Two statements hmm. revolutionized a moment. It's an elegance, the elegance of emotional genius. Hmm. And, and, and a lot of the conversations between Jesus and the religious leaders of that time were, uh, they were all about facts. And Jesus was all about essence. Mm -hmm. Which I have a, a chapter on the good. And I, and I think this is, when, sometimes when I'm writing, I'll start writing and I'll pause and realize I'm writing about something I didn't even know, I knew. And this chapter was one of those chapters on the good. Because I, it was one of those moments where I realized, oh my gosh, I just, I understand what has been informing me all my life, even though I didn't understand it. Because when I, when I became a person of faith, they talked to me a lot about right and wrong, good and evil. Mm -hmm. And it, it always seemed to me, to me to be almost like a lower level of thinking. Yes. And, and you know, and I, I cared about right and wrong, you know, and good mm -hmm. and evil, but I, I, I felt like it was, it was um, flatlining a deeper conversation. Because, you know, I wasn't waking up in the morning going, do I rob a bank or do I help the homeless? You know, and so I wasn't really choosing between yeah. good and evil, you, you know, and, and most of the time I wasn't even choosing between right and wrong. I wasn't even choosing between do I cheat on this test or, mm -hmm. you know, or do I study harder, right? You know, I, most of the time I was choosing between good and good and, or, or, you know, what good should I do? Or, and, and, and then one day I realized, oh, Jesus moves us from thinking from the right to the good. Hmm. What's the difference between right and good? Right. So they come to Jesus and they say, hey, the, the scriptures say that you should not work on the Sabbath. You should keep the Sabbath holy. But here's this man and he needs to be healed. So Jesus, are you going to heal on the Sabbath and violate the law? See, they're talking about right and wrong. And then Jesus says, is it right to do good? Hmm. And they can't answer that question because they're about right and wrong. And Jesus is about good. And he, the good always supersedes the right. Mm. And in fact, the person who's living their life between right and wrong, they're probably avoiding the deeper conversation of the good. Mm. And it's, it's just lower level thinking. Yes. You know how paralyzing it is to spend your whole life going, is this right or wrong? Rather than going, am I doing the most good mm. that I'm capable of? What questions should we be asking ourselves in order to get to a higher level of thinking. Is this motivated by love? I mean, that, that's the most important question to ask. Ah. Is this motivated by love? Yeah. And, you know, the... the um, what are most of us motivated by in the world? So many different things. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we're both simple and complex creatures, right? Yeah. You know, I, I do think there's some driving intrinsics in all of us. All of us have a, a longing to... Uh, to be loved, yes. to be connected for intimacy. And that can be, that can have a light and a darkness to it. 
you know, and so when we're motivated, <laughs> yeah, right? I know that, I know that feeling. Yeah, you know, and, and so we need to realize we're always going to have this intrinsic craving for intimacy, for connection, for love, for relationship. And, and we have a whole universe of language for it. Family, uh, friendships, mm-hmm. community, church, all that's the language of, of relationship, connection, of intimacy. And intimacy is the thing we long for most and fear the most. And so it becomes, for so many of us, why the are we, Why are we so afraid of intimacy? Because we don't know if anyone can love us for our true self. Oh, man, that's true. Right. For all the darkness, all the bad, the shame, the, the guilt, the insecurity, and all that, right? By the way, Lewis, this is going to be my one Jesus moment in the middle of this whole, whole conversation. This is why uh, Jesus is so unique. He knows you completely and loves you completely. And all your flaws, all the bad parts, everything. Yeah, it's it's only a self-delusion that you're revealing yourself to God piece by piece. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if there is a God, he knows you completely. Right. And, and here to me what is so mind-blowing, the one person who knows you completely loves you unconditionally. Mm. Every other relationship is sort of a dance. Right. It's a salsa. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're, you're revealing the part of yourself that you feel is most lovable and slowly disclosing the part of you that you don't know can't be loved mm-hmm. and hiding the part of you that you're certain cannot ever be loved mm. because you can't even love yourself in that. And, and so you, mm. we, we, we try to find intimacy without letting a person to our deepest selves. Because how can you believe someone can love you at your deepest self when you can't even love yourself? Oh, snap. So how do we learn how to love ourselves fully with all the darkness that we feel inside of us? See, in my life, the only solution I found was Jesus. Mm-hmm. Was when I found, when I came to a conviction that I was loved without condition. Oh. And that God had stepped into human history, taken on flesh and blood, died for me, rose from the dead, and sees me completely and holds it, holds none of it against me, mm. and loves me without reservation. It's it, it's it's the most liberating space in the world, you know. Because I, I I'm realistic. I know there are things I could do that could cost me my wife's love. Mm, right, right. I've been married 38 years. Yeah, yeah. You do something that's yeah. I, I know out of integrity that, with yeah. your agreement to the marriage, then. Yeah. And 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 I don't think I I think her love is deep and profound. Uh, you know, I, I have two kids, and I imagine they they would always love me. But but I imagine there's an aspect of that love that could be devastated if I did certain yeah. things. Yeah, maybe they wouldn't like you as much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or they won't respect me, or they right. or maybe they they kind of the kind of love where we love you, but we can't be with you. Right. Yeah, we love you from afar. Yeah, but the thing about who Jesus is is. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to stick with you, mm. and I'm going to see you through this, and I'm going to help you become a different person. And, and for me, that became a life-defining um, uh, relationship where I, I now have a relationship with someone who, doesn't, who does not define me by the, my worst moments, but defines me, in a sense, by my best moments, even moments I have not yet had. Mm. And, uh, but I, and I think that the motivation of that is love. And I would like to think there's nothing my wife could ever do that could cost me loving her. But I, I, but I know that I have my human limitations probably, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I do think that the more I love like Jesus loved, the more all-encompassing that love is. Mm-hmm. So if I can love the way Jesus loves, I can love my wife through anything she ever does. Wow. I can love my children through anything they ever do. I can love you through anything you ever do. And it doesn't mean that you always trust, because trust has to be earned. Mm-hmm. But love is supposed to be a gift. Mm. And, and it's not a gift that we seem that 
readily capable of, of giving, you know, but, um, but I trust or love, love. Mm-hmm. I think that trust takes us a long time, <laughs> you know, why don't we give yeah. love, uh, abundantly? I, well, you know, maybe it's source material <laughs> and, uh, maybe we've never experienced love unconditionally and, and we're not actually the principal source of love. The God is the principal source of love. And that when we then connect to the principal love, source of love, then that love becomes limitless. Mm. Is it possible to love ourselves unconditionally? Even if we keep doing things that we know are hurting to other people or hurtful to ourselves or yes. breaking our agreements, is it possible to say, well, I still love myself unconditionally even though yeah. I did this bad and wrong? It's funny because I was just at this event where everyone paid $100,000 to be yeah. there. With it's Joel this, and Dan, right? Yeah, it's a yeah, yeah, yeah. hundred million mastermind. Yes. Everybody's company has to make minimally $100 million and everything. So I'm in a conversation with this guy during one of the breaks and he said, uh, no, I, uh, we need to realize that we're all gods. We're all gods. We're all gods. And he said, and that our principal responsibility is to love ourselves unconditionally. And I looked at him and he was a really like good looking, you know, guy, probably 6'4", 230, jacked, handsome. Yeah. You know, if anybody should love themselves unconditionally, it probably would be him, right? You know, making a hundred million a year, you you know. And I looked at him, I said, uh, your principal responsibility is to love yourself unconditionally because you're a god. He said, yes. I said, how's that going? He said, not well. <laughs> and this is the reality is, no one knows you in, in this space of, of the human experience better than you. So to love yourself unconditionally becomes an impossibility mm. because you know the turmoil inside of yourself. That, but once you understand your value isn't based on yourself, it's based on, on God's initiation of you. That you're designed in the image and likeness of God. You're created by God's intention. You are designed by love for love. Then now you're not the source of that unconditional love. And so in that sense, Lewis would say is that you can love yourself unconditionally when you realize that you didn't you didn't decide that value, that God decided that value. Interesting. Yeah. Because we're too fickle. Yeah, yeah. You know, on Tuesday I, I love myself. On Wednesday <laughs> I hate myself. You know, on Thursday I'm awesome. On Friday I'm a failure. Yeah. And I do not want the basis of my own unconditional loving based <laughs> on me. Sure. I, I, and um, I, I want it based on on someone who sees me completely and still loves me unconditionally. It sounds like intimacy is one of the ultimate gifts, then, because. It's hard for us to do the unconditional love thing for ourselves, but we can, if we can do it with another person that we're building a life with and a relationship with, even when they fall down, yeah. that's a beautiful gift to give to someone too. That's right. The greatest gift you give someone is that kind of unconditional love. And, and, and seeing that as the greatest expression of your humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's mm. not just to be loved, but to love someone else. Yeah. You know, and I remember one time when we were um, young, um, my wife looked at me, Kim, and she said, honey, why do you love me? And I was trying to be uh, my higher self. Yeah. And I said, um, for no reason at all. Oh. She goes, what? <laughs> Wrong use of language. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, tell me all the reasons yeah, why yeah. you love me now. <laughs> yeah. And she goes, what? And I said, I don't, I don't love you for any reason. I just love you. <laughs> and then she said, oh, so there's no reason to love me. And I realized I, it was not going well. And she just went on. She goes, well, it's good to know that there's no reason to love me. And, 
And then I, I remember looking and I said, oh, you want me to love you conditionally, oh. not unconditionally. See, there's an aspect of us, we just desperately want conditional love. We want to believe that, that if you really know me, you'll just think I'm awesome and you will love me rather than to be loved unconditionally if you really know me. Mm. You're going to see that there's parts of me that are still broken and, um, and then you'll still love me. And, and I, I think our ego wants conditional love, but our souls want unconditional love. Mm. And there's an aspect of me. I want to be loved because I'm awesome. Right, right, right. right. You know? I did this cool thing and I'm talented yeah. and I'm smart yeah. and I'm, yeah. You know, don't you love me? Right, right. <laughs> and, but then there's a part of me that, that knows that that conditional love um, is flawed and it's limited mm-hmm. and it doesn't reach the deepest part of me. Yeah. You know. Uh, and, I, I, and I think that's the, Lewis, it's astonishing to me that I've lived my entire life based on the reality of this person, Jesus Christ. And that, uh, but a huge part of that is that moment where I I just accepted this as a possibility, Mm -hmm. that God created us with intention and that God's motive was love. Yeah. And that I don't have to spend my life searching for love and running from God because that's insanity. That when, you run from God, you're actually running from love. Mm. Now, a lot of people will say to me, hey, I ran from God because that was a disastrous space. Like, well, now you ran from people who use God's name. Mm-hmm. And if you were running from really dark or broken or uh, hypocritical religion, I want you to realize you actually weren't running from God, you're running to God, because that's not where God is either. Right. Jesus actually opposed that. And, and that helped me realize, oh, when I'm running from all those things that don't express love, I'm not running from God, I'm actually running to God. Mm-hmm. Because God is where there's unconditional love. God is where there is compassion and kindness, where there's hope and grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, one of the last chapters is on grace and I had this great conversation with Ben Affleck. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the things that really struck me about Ben was how he was mesmerized by the concept of grace. And I thought, I, I'm seeing grace through such a, a beautiful lens because his life is so public and his highs are so public and his lows are so public uh-huh. and his successes and his failures. And, yeah. and, uh, and it's so easy when you're in the, uh, the public limelight for people to want to always define you by the worst aspects of who yeah, you are. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know why, but in that conversation, I just had a fresh appreciation for grace mm. and uh, for the genius of grace. The idea that you should forgive your enemies. Mm. What an idea. That's it crazy. It, it's, it's absurd. And in fact, there's, uh, if I could just highlight one place where Jesus says some things that are so counterintuitive. Because uh, we forget the Jews were slaves. Jesus was born into slavery. Huh. The Romans had conquered them. The, uh, Israel was not free. Right. We always read the Bible and Jesus think, oh, they were free and everything like that. No, you know, even when Paul writes about slaves and, 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 uh, and masters, he's writing to a people who have accepted the reality that they're slaves of the Roman Empire and they are not ultimately free. And so Jesus addresses three things that they have to deal with. He, he says, look, if someone takes your coat, then uh, you're sure give them your coat too. Because the Romans could come if they were cold and take your, your coat from you. And you could feel the powerlessness of someone coming, taking what you worked so hard to take. 
And Jesus goes, no, let me show you how to turn this upside down. When they take your coat, you let them and go, ah, oh, you're so cold. And I really want to take care of you, so I'm going to give you my shirt, too. Because mm. I'm more resilient than you. I can take the cold. Ooh. And, and he says, look, when they, um, when they come to slap you on the face, like if you, if they did that because they knew if they slapped that Jewish young man, if he retaliated with a sense of honor, because right, you're, you're being humiliated, you're going to get killed. Because the moment you touch the Roman soldier, you've given them a reason to kill you. Because oh. they can humiliate you, but they can't kill you. Mm. And so they'd slap you, and then you felt powerless and humiliated. Jesus goes, no, no, turn the other cheek. So you, know, you, you clearly have an issue. So I'm, I'm just going to like let you take it out on me because wow. I can take this. Wow. And, and then he says to them, uh, if they make you carry their pack for one mile, see, because there was a law back then that the Roman could rest his horse by taking the pack off the horse and putting it on a Hebrew. Oh, my gosh. And, and he said, so if they make you carry that pack for a mile, he said, you carry it two miles. Can you imagine having to carry this pack for a mile and that Roman soldier thinking that he has power over you? Wow. And then at the end of the mile, he goes, all right, you, you, know, you Hebrew dog, you can put it down now and go back home. Because the mile walking in his direction was humiliating enough. The mile back, you just... The walk of ima- shame. Imagine being a young Hebrew man oh. and carrying that shame, you know, because you couldn't do anything. And at the end of the mile, you go, no, your, your horse clearly needs rest. <laughs> I'm going to carry it a second mile. Wow. You don't have the, lo- the power to do that. Oh. The law doesn't allow you to do that. Not even those, those Roman emblems can, can force me to take it a second mile. The second mile is on me. Wow. And Jesus just starts flipping upside down power. He starts flipping upside down forgiveness. He starts flipping upside down the good. And, and they didn't know what to do with him. They didn't know what to do with him. And... Uh, and you, you might say, that's absurd. You can't live that. Look at Nelson Mandela. Yeah. He did do that. Mm-hmm. Look, look at Gandhi. He did the, do that. Look at Mother Teresa. She did do that. Uh, throughout history, look at MLK Jr. He did do that. And, uh, and you have these people who are informed by the, the teachings of Jesus. And they see power and grace. They see forgiveness. Uh, from an entirely different vantage point. And they have a power that we cannot understand, mm. a genius that is undeniable throughout human history. Yeah. And this is what I would say, see, Jesus's genius wasn't just visible in him, it became visible in every person who began to live by his principles mm. and chose to emulate what it meant to be human. Yeah, he spread that message. I'm curious about is it possible to, to be a genius in your own town and in your own community? Because <laughs> I was hearing this message actually the other day by Wayne Dyer talking about tribes and communities and how mm-hmm. they can support you in certain ways, but sometimes they want to conform you and hold your genius down yeah. and pull you back, you know, like the bucket of crabs, of crab trying to get out, the other crabs right. trying to pull you down. Is it possible to be genius in your own family? in your own city, in your own state or communities, mm-hmm. or is part of being a genius leaving at some point or going on a journey? Not, not leaving them for good, but just going beyond to explore the genius inside of you in a way that's not conformed to the community that you're in. 
Yeah, I think you have to decide whether acceptance or uniqueness is a higher value for you. Oh, man. And, um, you wow. know, when I, when I became a person of faith, uh, I wanted so badly to fit into Christianity. Really? I did. I wanted to fit into the church. I wanted to fit into this faith community, and I never did. Why and, not? Uh, because I accidentally saw the world differently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I cannot tell you how many times over the last 40 years I was identified as a heretic. Um, I, I was, you know, uh, uh, they wouldn't sell my books in, in mm. the Christian bookstores. And, you know, thank God for Borders and Barnes and Nobles <laughs> because they kept me alive. Yeah. And uh, Amazon, yeah. <laughs> Amazon now, yeah, but I'm older than you. Amazon did not exist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I realized, um, in fact, this week I just did a TV interview and the person said, I heard you 16 years ago on a panel. And she said, there were seven people on the panel and we all answered the questions exactly from the same box. And then whenever you talked, it would be from a completely different box. And as she spoke and told me about what she experienced for me 15, 16 years ago, I actually left with a sadness. Mm. And I told my wife, I said, I felt sad because I spent so much of my life wanting to be accepted. And, 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 and in that acceptance, I always felt like I had to sacrifice my uniqueness. Oh, man. And what set me free along the way was this one day I decided... I'm no longer going to live a life of obligation. I'm going to live a life of intention. Mm-hmm. And even if being uniquely me means that I walk alone, I would rather do that. And um, a metaphor came to me that has carried me. Uh, over a decade ago, I think it was, I learned about a whale that communicates at 52 hertz. I think now there's a movie that came out this year on it. And, and I read that this uh, about a decade ago where this whale... Is, is called the loneliest whale in the world because whales communicate through frequency and all other whales communicate at around 40 hertz, I think it is, 30 or 40 hertz. And so whales find each other through that, that frequency. This one whale, for some reason, only hears and speaks at 52 hertz and so it cannot hear any other whale and it cannot be heard. And, when, and, and so years and years ago, I did this talk on 52 hertz. And, and, I, and I said that the great dilemma is that we will spend our lives being told we need to conform to 40 hertz if mm. we're going to find a place to belong. But our genius, our uniqueness is in that 52 hertz. It's in that frequency that no one else can hear and maybe they can't even hear us. Uh. And we have to decide to not sacrifice our uniqueness Ooh. and choose conformity for acceptance. How do we live with that if you don't have friends family doesn't accept you, your communities think you're weird. How do you learn to live with the loneliness of being unique over being accepted? Um, for me, it was really challenging. My kids have actually told me, and when they were growing up, they said, Dad, um, we love you, and being your kids was really hard. Mm-hmm. We had no place to belong. Wow. And my, my, my son, would have when he went to college, would spend almost every day having to defend being my son to people. And um, because of my lack of orthodoxy or, you know, or my heresy or, uh-huh. and, and, and so it is in a sense, a burden that you choose to carry and mm-hmm. everyone's related to you does carry it with you. And I cannot tell you how many times in the living room I would, I would say something and my wife would say, please don't say that outside of this living room. Oh man. 
And I'd, I'd say, why? She goes, I just, I, I want you to be accepted by people. And it, it doesn't seem like much, but 40 years ago in the living room, I said to my wife, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, but he was wrong. And, and you have to understand that, <laughs> that I, I, I live in a world where people, you know, believe in the Bible. I believe in the Bible and, and in its teachings. I respect it. And, and, but I don't accept things without thought. Mm-hmm. And when Solomon said there's nothing new, new under the sun, I told her, I said, this is Christianity's culture. But the truth is that Solomon was having a really bad day because he begins that chapter by saying everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You shouldn't get your ideology from a man who says everything is meaningless. And and in fact, in another passage in Isaiah, Isaiah says, um, put away the former things. Do not dwell in the past. It says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Even now it springs up, but will you even see it? So I'm going, well, even in the Bible, God says I'm doing a new thing. But Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. So who are you going to believe? You see, it seems to me that human beings become nihilistic. We think there's no tomorrow, there's no hope, there's no future. But God's always saying, I'm doing a new thing. And, and I, I think a huge part of it is, you know, that when I was talking earlier about how your brain forms around by the age of 12, mm-hmm. well, I was so dysfunctional. I mean, not just not neurotic, I was so psychotic, I think. <laughs> and uh, I was a straight D student. I was flunking out of school. I lived inside of my imagination. I was um, nine years old probably when I found Robert Heinlein and started reading Glory Road and Stranger in a Strange Land and all the Isaac Eisenhoff and uh, Andre Norton and all these physicists who wrote science fiction. And I stumbled on Tolkien and all these different writers. And so I'm reading all these books from Salinger. At, you know, I'm nine, 10, 11 years old, I'm, but it's contraband for me. No one knows I'm reading it. I, I'm flunking out of school and reading all these thinkers and writers and living in my imagination. And I began to create an imaginary world that, um, that I, I got lost in. And that was part of my problem is that by the time I was 13 or 14, I realized I wasn't coming out of this world. I would be in school and the whole class would be gone. The teacher couldn't get my attention. I'd be lost in my inner world and I'd wow. be completely oblivious to, to what was going on around me. Every year I'd say, I'm gonna make straight A's. And by the third or fourth day, I wouldn't even remember what classes I was in. Mm. And, and, and people thought I was being rebellious and I, I wasn't. I, I was so detached from the outside world. And then I re- look back now, I realize the one function I had up to the age of 12 for me wasn't math or science or geology or geometry, it was imagination. Mm-hmm. I lived in my imagination and my brain knew that without my imagination, I couldn't survive. And so now I look at it at 63, my imagination is my greatest tool, it's my greatest gift. Right. And uh, I was at a lecture at Columbia University. It wasn't really a lecture, it was a debate. I didn't know it was a debate until I got there. <laughs> and five, six hundred people there. I finally got to go to an Ivy League school. And, uh, <laughs> and there was a senior scientist from Columbia, the head of the Department of Humanities, and me. And the topic was, what can be known? And the senior scientist said, what can be known is what can be empirically proven. And he was supposed to be an atheist. And the uh, director of humanities, she was a Kantian philosopher. And she said, what can be known is what can, is human action, ethics. And they read their opening statements. I didn't know it was going to be this kind of debate. So I opened up by saying, well, what can be known is I should be better prepared. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, because I'm not an expert at what can be known. I'm more of an expert of what is unknown, of uncertainty, of mystery. I said, because I think the unknown is far more important than the known. Mm. Because science doesn't advance without the unknown. Mm-hmm. And because and, that's what drives uh, scientific exploration. And because once we knew the world was flat, and if we didn't 
pursue the unknown, we wouldn't know that it's spherical. And really, I agree with you that what can be known is empirical, but it's not enough. And I agree with you that what can be known is human action, but it's not enough because what we really want to understand is human motive. Mm. We want to know why we do what we do. That's really the study of humanities. Yeah. It's not what humans have done, it's why did humans do this? What drives us, what motivates us, what shapes us? And, and at the end of the lecture, we had a Q&A, three by five cards, a stack this high. Like one for the scientists, one for the humanists, and then a stack for the guy who actually believes in God. Because <laughs> they thought it was sort of a phenomenon, right? You know, and, and I got this question I'll never forget. Best question I've ever gotten, other than yours. <laughs> and uh, uh, when you were a child, you had imaginary friends. Yeah. Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and God. Uh-huh. Why did you get rid of your other imaginary friends and keep God? Isn't that a great question? Interesting, yeah. And, and I said, I, never, I still remember my answer. I said, first of all, you clearly don't know me if you think I've given up my imaginary friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, they're, the, the, they're the longest uh, standing friends I have, and they stay with me. And what's kind of, to me, is interesting is in my dreams, I, I have this, this um, neurological condition where I wake up and I'm still in my dreams. And mm-hmm. my family's found me in different places, and wow. I'm, I'm still awake, but I can't get out of the dreams. And, um, and so I have a place that I've gone to since I was a child in my dreams where I know the people, I know the place, and it feels as real to me when I come back out, wow. I feel this huge sense of loss and separation. I've always had this, this tension of this multi-dimensional kind of experience. And so I said, you know, I haven't given up my imaginary friends. And, and I said, but you're right. I gave up, you know, Santa Claus and, you know, mm-hmm. or Tooth Fairy. And, and, but I didn't know God. See, I didn't grow up with God. Uh. So God wasn't one of my imaginary friends, interestingly enough. I remember having one conversation with God around 10. I yelled at God because he was uh, so uh, worthless. He couldn't help me in my life. And so what was the point of a God even existing? Mm-hmm. And I said, but here's the thing. When my son was three, four years old, he would not eat vegetables. He, but we'd put him in the backyard. He would eat dirt and rocks. And I remember one time saying to Kim, honey, do you realize that our son won't eat your cooking, but he will eat dirt and rocks? <laughs> what are you trying to say? And I said, I have an idea. I said, let's just throw the food in the backyard and see if he eats it. <laughs> and she said, you should not be a parent. <laughs> and, uh, but we didn't give up on the eating just because he didn't know what was healthy to eat right. and what wasn't good to eat. Just like with my imagination. When I was a child, yes, I had imaginary friends, but I didn't give up on my imagination. Because just because we have imaginary friends doesn't mean there isn't a friend that created the imagination. Mm. See, because if there is a God then the human imagination is the only dimension in which God could actually meet us. Mm. Because our imagination is the one place where we're unlimited. There are no boundaries in our imagination. There are no limitations in our imagination. And I think the imagination is the playground of God, where God joins us and dreams with us and helps us see a future we could not see alone, and us that we could not see by ourselves, Uh and a life we could not even imagine without Him. And so as an adult now, I'm going, no, go back to your childlike imagination. Jesus said, unless you're like a little child, you cannot, even, you cannot enter my kingdom. Mm. See, maybe what Jesus is telling us is like, what I gave you in the beginning and what you gave up and treated as if it was not valuable, your genius, your creativity, your imagination, your capacity to create the future. This is how I designed you. And you need to go back to that because the future is literally not in your hands, it's in your soul. Mm. The future humanity desperately needs exists in the imagination of a child right now. Didn't Einstein talk about imagination? What was his, yeah, he had a famous a, quote about imagination. It's more it's important like, than knowledge. 
Yeah. You know, and, and, and imagination is in, intelligence at play, uh-huh. right? And and I, I think this is exactly right that imagination is the uh, the true iteration of human intelligence. Interesting. With that, without imagination, intelligence is just data. Yeah. It's imagination that translates knowledge into genius. Yes. For those who have experienced a lot of doubt in their belief in God or their faith or their belief in humans or the world or all this stuff in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. what is your advice for people that have lost faith? And also, when was the moment in your life where you doubted your faith the most? Yeah. What I'd say is that when you feel like you've lost faith in God, you need to realize what you've actually lost is faith in humanity. Mm. Because, Lewis, if there is no God, then what has caused your disillusionment? People. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people's actions or lack of actions, right? Yeah. So when people go, you know, no, I used to believe in God, but, you know, I now know there's no God. What you're actually saying is I actually have lost my faith in people. Because human beings are either the best proof that there is no God or the best proof that there is a God. Yeah. And it just, in the same way when people say, well, you know, hmm. I, I can't believe in God because he's unseen. It, you can't, he's not noble. Or, um, and I'm going, well, how do you believe in love? Because love is unseen. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if God's transcendent, love is certainly transcendent. Yes. So even if there's no God, we do believe in transcendent things. And, and I believe in love even when I've been betrayed by what I thought was love. I believe in love even when love seemed to have died. I believe in love even when my love was inadequate. Mm. I've loved people and then I stopped loving them. Are you willing to admit that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, see, what does it say about me? That I, I, I've loved people and I thought it was all the love I had. And then I didn't. I mean, I went through a time of mourning, but eventually it was a memory. Barely right. even a memory. Right. And, and what, I, what we need to realize is that our, our disillusionment in God is actually disillusionment in humanity. Mm-hmm. But I actually do believe that human ideals are like the phantom pain of the soul. The fact that we believe that there could be peace on earth, or the fact that we believe that humans can be good, or the fact that we believe there could be no suffering or no war. Like these are, when, when, when uh, Walter from Scorpion says, uh, the facts are against me, the facts are against all that. Mm. We've never had a history of peace. We do not have a human history without war. Mm-hmm. We do not have a human history without poverty. We do not have a human history without injustice. The fact that we have these ideals, the facts are against us, but wow. the future might be for us. Ooh. And what we need to realize is that these human ideals are actually transcendent. And I think they're the proof of God. They're the phantom pain of the soul, letting us know this is what humans are supposed to look like. And, I, and I've talked to you about phantom yeah. pain in the past, and I think that this is a part of it. And so what I would say to someone is, first of all, um, if you've lost your faith in God, you're around the wrong people because you've lost your faith in people. And the best way to start, because when people would say to me, there's, there's, there are no good people in the world. I've, I would hear people say that. There's no one you can trust. And, I, and you may even know people who actually live like that. Mm-hmm. And, and the way I resolve that is, I can either spend my whole life searching for a good person or spend my whole life searching for someone who can be trusted, or spend my whole life someone who's a true friend, where I can become that. Mm-hmm. So my journey ends with me. I'm gonna be that friend. I'm gonna be that person you can trust. I'm gonna be the person that 
desperately tries to live a life of integrity. Mm -hmm. I'm going to live my life with compassion and kindness. And then I know that if I can be that, there's another one. Yeah. And another one. So instead of searching for that and always being disappointed, become that. And let others end their disappointment because they met you. Right. (laughs) Right? So you can be the end of everyone else's disillusionment. And even in your imperfection, which Mm. I think is actually more powerful. Because right. then you're authentic and you're real. And, you know, and so I realized, like, when people say, look at human history, you know, religion, uh, there are a lot of atheists, I know, from Ted and other places that say, well, religion is the cause of all human evil. Mm. I'm like, wait a minute, how's that possible? See, because, again, if there's no God, then religion is just a human construct, just like government, mm-hmm. just like education. So within every human construct, is the source of human evil. <laughs> and what we need to realize is every time we try to blame God, we're just actually trying to diffuse and to displace the blame that is ours. Mm. And Because the best way to grapple with that is, there's no God, so who's responsible? When people say to me, I can't believe in God because of suffering in the world. Okay, there's no God. Is there still suffering? Well, yes. Well, then who's responsible now? Right, right. <laughs> All right. It's us. Mm-hmm. And... And then I look at it and go, on the flip side, and I go, wait a minute. But there always seems to be this threat throughout history. It's always the minority, and it seems to, to always have to be at a disadvantage, because isn't good at a disadvantage to evil? Because mm. good can only do good things, but evil can do anything it wants. Like, isn't kindness at a disadvantage to like, meanness? Because like, kindness also, always has to do the kind thing, but meanness can act kind or be mean. I mean, isn't forgiveness always at a deficit to bitterness? And, and, you, and yet, throughout history, these, these other human ideals that are always at a deficit, they always carry their theme through. Mm. Maybe that's the proof of God. Right. See, maybe the fact that in spite of all the evidence, we still believe in peace. We still want to be kind. We still want to be loving. Maybe in spite of the fact that we've been hurt, we still want love. We still want to be intimate. We're still willing to risk. Maybe that's the proof of God. Mm. See, maybe God is the sub-narrative in human history, and we're the narrative, and we keep blaming God for the narrative and act like we're the sub-narrative. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And is there a time where you almost lost your faith or doubted oh. your faith? Yeah, many, many times. It, it, it's odd. There's a difference between belief and faith for me. Okay, what's the difference? And uh, belief is usually rooted in um, things that you base on facts. And uh, faith is usually um, more abstract. It's and, um, based sometimes on experience or intuition. Like, um, like I, I don't know where my wife is right now. <laughs> yeah. So I don't have any facts to let me know where she's at. But I know my wife is being faithful to me. Right. So the facts aren't with me, but I have great faith in her. I don't have the, the facts to, for belief. In that sense, it, yeah, yeah. It, you know, but I, I have the intuition and essence for, for faith. And, and there's a dynamic, like there's this thing called the strength finder. Uh-huh. My wife's number one strength, or number two, is called belief. She has like two or three held beliefs and she holds on to them forever. Uh, my number two is called something called ideation. It's a thousand ideas a second. I don't have two or three firmly held beliefs. And there's a, there's a difference. And so I've struggled with faith because I refuse to not ask myself the hard questions. Like what? And, well, because I'm always growing and maturing, right? You know, and so 
the faith you have when you're five isn't the faith you should have at 15. Mm-hmm. And you know, when people say, I lost my faith, I go, no, no, no. Your faith just didn't grow, it, can, it didn't match up to your maturity or to your growth. And so the, the mind and the thinking of a 10-year-old is different than the thinking of a 20-year-old, thinking mm. of a 30-year-old. I'm 63 years old now. I mean, I, I'm, I'm processing years and years of experience and life and journey and relationships. And, you know, I, I, if you only grew up, let's say, in, in the Deep South and you only know Christians all your life, you see the world differently. You can actually see a world of Christians are the good guys and everybody else is bad. Or mm-hmm. you know, but when you travel the world and you, you you meet a person who's a Buddhist who's the kindest person in the world, or you meet a Muslim who loves his family and his children, he's a gracious father, and you, you you know, all of a sudden, all the categories that are just so easy to fill in are no longer boxes. Right. There's adaptability and, and pliability, and you realize, oh wow, this person doesn't believe in God, but they're actually moving toward good. A lot. Uh, with a lot more sincerity, this person does believe in God, but they're not moving toward God. And and I think a lot of times uh, we we want a faith that makes everything black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. and I look at it and go, it's not really about even who I am; it's who I'm becoming. Yeah. You know, when people say I need I need to know who I am, I need to, and I go, I don't need to know who I am, because who I am is fluid. Mm-hmm. I want to know who I'm becoming. Yeah. I was driving to San Diego one day and my wife called me and she goes, hey, where are you? And I said, I can't tell you where I am. I can tell you where I've been. <laughs> I can tell you where I'm going, but because I'm in motion, where I am isn't um, a reality. She's like, just tell me the answer. That's exactly what <laughs> she said. Just tell me where are you in the road? You're she on the- goes, just shut up and tell me where you are. <laughs> Don't be a philosopher right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I said, I'm on the five. <laughs> you know, in Orange County. And, but the truth is when people go, <laughs> you know, I'm searching to know who I am as a person. Uh-huh. Uh, that's why people never actually find their identity because we think it's static. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to know who I am. I want to know who I'm becoming. Right. And because I'm in constant motion. And so I, I question my faith because I'm always growing. Mm. You know, I, I'm, I mean, I just came back from TED. I listened to all the speakers. I, I, I listen to people who have contrasting views of reality and I take them seriously, and I listen with respect, and I absorb that, and uh, and then I start processing through what is this? How does this affect what I believe? You know, so I'm, I mean, yesterday I'm I'm reading and processing about you know uh, multiple black holes converging, and yeah. and asking myself how does this relate to my view of reality of an ever expanding universe of uh, you know whether there's multi dimensionality and whether mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, whether, you know, there'll ever be the existence of time travel. And, and those are things I think that I, I'm always going to be like processing. And as I learn new things and as I grow as a human being, every time I meet someone else, they change the information inside of my soul. Mm, and, yeah. you know, and, and so I, I would say my faith is, yes, I've had crises of faith because there were times I thought I was right and I was wrong. You know, but the one thing Lewis said has always been constant for me is uh, the week I turned 20 years old, I had an unexplainable, and I understand it's a, it's not scientifically provable encounter with Jesus Christ. And if I were just going to be an objective person, looking back 40 years ago, it must have happened because everything mm. changed. Mm. And my wife's married to me 38 years, and she looks at me, and she said this many times, what happened to you? Like you've changed, like you've grown. And 
I feel as if throughout my life, limitations were erased. Boundaries that were there some, somehow got destroyed. I, I just feel like somehow I got smarter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I got deeper. I, got, I, I found that I could go to different levels of the profound and the thoughtful. But the deepest, deepest thoughts I've ever had were about love, were about hope, were about kindness. And now I realize, oh, you know, I used to want to be smart. And, 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 but I realize that path has a limitation. Yeah. You know, to me, the deepest thing is when you connect to another human being mm-hmm. and you understand each other. And, yes. you know, you, uh, you have a level of connection that makes you feel as if there's nothing that separates you. Mm. And, and I'm still growing that. I'm still learning what it means to be profoundly spiritual. I'm still learning how to make being spirit more central to who I am than being flesh. You know, I, I told you, I love the material world. I'm not one of those people who thinks that the physical world is evil and the material world is spiritual. I think it's all beautiful. I think it's all spiritual. I think that, uh, that the, the material universe is extraordinary. It's, ex, it's exquisite and, and it's to be enjoyed and, and to be protected. Uh, but I also realize that I'm growing and developing as a human being. My level of consciousness has changed over 60 years of life. Uh, I, I, I want to be connected to the transcendent. And, um, and sometimes I'm experimenting in my life. I'm going, how can I be so connected to the transcendent where this moment can't hold me captive? Mm. You know, How can I get past emotions like fear and jealousy or bitterness or, or doubt, and, but not see them as my enemy? You know, because I, I see those emotions as negative emotions that push me toward the light. Yes. You know, and, and without them, how would I know that I still have somewhere to go? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers Absolutely. the question. For but, sure, for sure. Um, but yeah, I just, I just think there's genius in if, inside of all of us. And if we believe that, then the journey never ends. Yeah. We, we've never arrived. Yeah. We're always traveling. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and it inspired you on your journey towards greatness. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description for a full rundown of today's show with all the important links. I really love hearing feedback from you guys, so share a review over on Apple and let me know what part of this episode resonated with you the most. And if no one's told you lately, I want to remind you that you are loved, you are worthy, and you matter. And now it's time to go out there and do something great.